Welcome to Energy Radio. This is episode 70, and today we have a fun conversation queued up to talk about the sustainability plans and initiatives of one of Ontario's leading universities. Uh, but before we welcome our special guest for today, I will welcome my co-host for one of the last times, at least in the for, for a little while. Um, how many? Uh, how far away are we, Lisa? I'm uh, I'm about 36 weeks right now, so uh, I'm you know three or four weeks we'll call it from uh, from welcoming a baby boy into the world. So uh, who knows? We'll see when he arrives. <laughs> he could be any day. Well, uh, if he shows up mid-show, that'll make for great uh, podcasting. Uh, Unlikely, (laughs) but uh, we're trying to get in a bunch of podcasts before Lisa heads off uh, to spend some time uh, doing a much more important job of being a mom. Uh, And what Lisa doesn't know, and Lisa, cover your ears, is I'm going to take over the show while she's away. And uh, (laughs) I'm going to... I'm going to run a little rampage over the show, but uh, in the meantime, uh, we are going to have a great discussion today uh, with somebody that I've known now for uh, several years and uh, enjoyed uh, working with and and you know learning from, and seeing her passion for this space. Uh, and so, without further ado, I'd like to welcome our special guest to today's Energy Radio podcast, uh, Mary Quintana, who's the director of Asset Management and Utilities at Brock University. Mary, welcome to the show. Thank you, Matt. It's a pleasure to be here with you today. Awesome. Good. Well, Mary, you've uh, we've gotten to meet at a couple of your uh, in a couple of your roles in this space, but maybe you know, give the listeners your background. How did you get into energy? How did you get into the particular space of the energy industry that you're in? Uh, I often talk about our guests having a an origin story, like they're a comic book hero. So, give us your origin story, if you will, Mary, in the energy space. Absolutely. Well, it it was not linear, that's for sure. So uh, when I went to undergrad, I was supposed to be designing satellites. Um, I'm an engineer in electronics and telecommunications. So obviously that didn't uh, didn't um, was the way that I chose. After a a while, I was doing research and development, but mostly on the biomedical um, arena, mostly uh, early detection of uh, cervical cancer, image processing, stuff like that. But that was not really my calling. So I kept looking. I did consulting after a while, studying, uh, studied another master's in technology management. And then I was still not completely satisfied with what I was doing. So I kept looking. So I uh, studied another master's at Western University, the Master's of Environment and Sustainability. And that's where I really realized I love this. I really like doing this and energy and carbon and uh, as part of that I remember one of the projects was to how to generate hydrogen using molasses via dark fermentation and photofermentation. So I just I was passionate about that project and I, I realized I had found my calling. So uh, Western got a an eye on me with uh, some of those projects. So they hired me after I finished my master's. And that's when I really dove into to the energy, uh, the energy sector. So it took me a while to find my, my passion. It's something that was always in the back of my mind that I was interested on, but it's not something that I had really found. And just being here in the, in the sector and being able uh, to work with people that are creating knowledge and working for an employer that has such a high calling in the community and in the world as well. It's just very fulfilling. And and Mary, how did you get into the post-secondary education space specifically? Because you've been in that space for 
Whoa, I'm trying to think here. I looked at your LinkedIn profile yesterday. Uh, what, at least 11, 12 years, maybe something like that. You've, you've been with uh, Brock for, I think, three and then Western University for about eight years before that, right? Yes. So it's been a while. Um, probably if you include the research center, which was part of another university. So I've been in the sector for over 15 years in the post-secondary uh, education sector. And while we have our own challenges with uh, just some of the processes and guidelines that we have to abide to be fiscally responsible and everything. It also comes with great reward because it does feel that the vibrancy and students are willing to learn. They are willing to absorb what you have to offer. It just it's very rewarding to know that we are making a difference and the sector is so diverse it's there are so many different facets to it again in the beginning it was research and development now it's more into the facilities management and asset management so even within the same sector there are so many avenues that make it very interesting and also the portfolio that a university has you can be talking to someone about art and um, a gallery and a space to keep it comfortable and then you're talking about cogeneration with someone else so it's so diverse that it's also very very uh, interesting i want to come back to something you said mary that you, you, you used this word calling you used it twice at least and then you talked about you know discovering your love and your passion for it and I, and I personally, I want that for everybody. I think that, you know, if you can find the intersection of your, what you're good at and, and what you, what you love and, and what an organization needs, I mean, um, that, that intersection is, is a really cool thing. Can you describe, like, was it, what was it that kind of was the aha moment, or maybe it wasn't a moment, but my sense is it was more of a feeling than uh than you know results or or some other re can you just can you unpack that a little bit for our listeners particularly young listeners who like you may be journeying through their career what was it like to or how did you kind of know that aha this is my calling i think it was when i was doing consulting i did consulting both as a freelance and then for a short while for a large multinational company. So when I was doing freelance, uh, one of my clients was uh, La Manzana Group in Mexico City. They had three strategic business units, but the whole core and the niche of their um, of their business was sustainability. So they were doing uh, a store selling only sustainable items, uh, everything from wood made uh, brushes and um, free run eggs, all kinds of things, but everything sustainability based. They had a deli where they were promoting fair trade, they were using local ingredients and whatnot. And they also had a little cafe on the side. So I had to really dive into to understand their business model, their, their um, differentiators, how would technology be able to help them if franchising is uh, something that they wanted to, to explore, all of those. So I really had to take a deep dive into what their values were, their mission and their strategy. So talking to the owner and the employees, it became very evident how they truly believed in what they were doing and how that really differentiated them. As part of those conversations, I became aware of uh, the benefits of many of those products, sustainability and uh, all of the um, all of all of the things that made them different, made them unique. And they would explain to me anything from how organic meat is different from regular meat, all of those things. So it became 
so eye-opening for me that I realized this is really interesting. They are making money, they are growing and expanding and hiring more people, but they are also making a positive difference in the world. How how cool is that? I, I want to do that. I want to day by day while making a living, I want to enjoy what I do and also want to make a positive uh, difference in the world. And that's, I think, when it came together for me, just thank you to this client and their vision that uh, that they really educated me into this is uh, what this is about. And that's something that has stayed with me for, for a while. Mm. Cool. Thank you for sharing oh. that, that. That's a that's a great, uh, great story. And I hope, you know, many people who are listening can kind of capture their 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 calling. So I appreciate you, you, you sharing that uh, it means a lot. So Lisa, you had a question. Yeah, I was going to say, Mary, so as it relates to that kind of, you know, making that impact or that positive difference in the world, you've obviously been in the industry, the energy industry now for quite a few years. Have you seen, in your opinion, dramatic change over the years? Or, you know, what what what, have, what are you seeing from your viewpoint? I think there has been a significant change. I find that uh, when first you talked about carbon it would be like witchcraft. What are you talking about? Mm-hmm. And in the beginning, I would get people um, telling me that maybe I should be putting my my effort and my time into something more tangible because that was all like mm-hmm. loosey-goosey stuff. No one sees carbon. So now the conversation has become so mainstream that it's a huge difference. Now you talk carbon and everyone is not only, at least on the know, but everyone also has an opinion. Climate change is now not just something that it's talked into these uh, specific groups and sectors is now mainstream conversation around the world. And I think that that has been one of the biggest differences. And also the the awareness of how it also impacts businesses, uh, bottom lines, and how it also shapes different markets around all the types of um, of industries, I think that has made a huge impact and it will continue making more of an impact. I think that's really where the the biggest difference lies, not only in the availability of technologies and solutions, but also in how often now we talk about these things. Very interesting. Yeah, very, very cool. Um, You know, it's it's touching us all over, like we were on a call just the other day and not only now is it carbon, but it's energy, you know, resiliency and 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 energy you know security right you see what's happening in europe and and scary scary stuff not you know certainly the 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 conflict is scary and then the knock-on effects we're hearing stories of plants in italy you know closing production because they just can't get natural gas it's scary stuff um so let's go back you know more local uh from from what's happening over there and and I, my wife is a, is an alumni from from your university, from the Teachers College. We we live literally around the corner. I see you know the campus every day. Uh, talk to us about your work there, and maybe start with your environmental sustainability plan. You launched it in in 2018. Talk to us about that and and kind of what you're focused on. And and I'm sure there will be lots of threads that we can pull on as a result. So it has evolved. So we have the 2018 sustainability plan and now we are uh, starting the work on the new one that we are going to release next year. Our current goals go to 2023. So now we're going to prepare new goals and a new plan for next year. So we have to start early. So that's one of the, the projects that I have going on right now. Uh, so far, we have been focusing on energy. It has been a, a, a big driver. 
Also, we have done a lot on waste management. Brock has one of the uh, the highest diversion rates uh, on waste within the, the universities in the province. And we have more to do when, when it comes to some of the, the streams, when it comes to coffee cups, it's not that great. So we have um, mm. more work to do. And the same with energy, that has been a big focus, but I think that it's something that it's ingrained in Brock's culture. Um, back in 1992, and that was obviously before my days at Brock, um, leaders made a visionary decision of going with hot water. Uh, when they were building the plant and natural gas became available in the, um, in the escarpment, they decided we're not going to install a steam plant. We are going to install a hot water plant with co uh, cogeneration. We're going to do reciprocating engines. We're not going to do the steam turbine. So at the moment, it didn't seem that way, but it was a visionary decision. There are not many district energy systems like ours across North America. Uh, many of our, our peers, and that's something that I, I know my, my colleagues in other universities are starting to work on. And then when I look at Brock, it's we've been hot water for many, many years now, for over two decades. So it was truly something visionary. And energy continues to be something very important for Brock. And that was demonstrated back in 2019 when we upgraded um, our cogeneration plant. We improved, uh, we got new engines, we got a new chiller, a new absorption chiller. So that has remained one of the biggest uh, areas that we focus for sustainability efforts not only because we appreciate what it does for us in terms of uh, cost containment, resilience and climate change adaptation, but also because it makes good business sense. It, it's just the, the right thing to do for, for the institution. So it, we continue investing on it because we have control over its operation. It's uh, also the largest source of carbon emissions for the institution. So it makes sense that we that we tackle it first, that we invest our time and resources on it. And that's something that we will continue doing. Um, the, the upgrades and the changes didn't stop with just changing the assets and modernizing the plant. It also continued with adding a SCADA system, which now we have this volume of data. We, we were using a commercial um, system for operating our plant and for collecting information. Now we have an industrial grade SCADA system. We use Ignition and we have developed a solution that's customized for Brock. It was not out of the box. It was completely developed uh, from scratch for Brock. And we continue developing it. We continue developing new sequences for the, the system. So we are, we are really just beginning to scratch the surface of what we can do. And um, something that you'll see in the, in the future, you'll see on the sustainability plan, far more emphasis on engagement on making sure that we participate with our community and the larger Niagara community on our initiatives. You'll see more of a campus as a living lab initiative. Um, Brock is working towards starting um, engineering programs, uh, more of a transdis transdisciplinary approach. And we envision how, and as an engineer myself, I'm biased, of course, um, but how cool would it be to have the students do projects on the plant and to participate yeah. and to get access to the data. So that's something that we, we really want to do to have more of these projects and more of a, of a living experience for, for the students, not only for engineering and that's upcoming, but also for mathematics, computer science. We have many other 
um, departments that can benefit from that. So we really want to, to emphasize that on the next sustainability plan and of course to take our carbon and energy efficiency to the next level. That piece about engaging the student body, I mean that I'm a proud McMaster mechanical engineering grad and um, unfortunately for me, the first time I saw the steam plant at McMaster was five years after graduation when we were doing a walkthrough for their cogen job. Um, and I, I just, it, it struck me, it's like, and I guess I could have demonstrated some, some you know, initiative as well, but it, it struck me as like, you know, now knowing what I know now, it's like sitting on this beautiful, you know, thermal power plant, um, you know, you could have taken the, the students through there, right? I realize there's safety concerns, a bunch of, you know, stupid college kids going through there, right? But um, <laughs> that's great that you guys are doing that. That's, you know, that's so, so meaningful. Um, I want to come back to the plan. Just um, there's a bunch of stuff I wrote down. There was so much in there. Uh, but let's start with kind of the, how the, the process of making the plan and now you're starting to go through the second phase of that or the extension of that. Um, how much of it is kind of the the you know the board of uh, the board of the university or saying hey we're going to do this versus you know you and your team kind of saying we'd like to do this like how does that go from you know all these disparate kind of ideas to a real cohesive plan you know I'm sure it's a lengthy and arduous process but can you give us a glimpse if there are other universities listening saying i want to do that like what what are some of the key things you've done well to get to your plan or will do in your next plan what we're going to be doing for this new plan we certainly want to to make sure that we align with our strategy and our core principles at brock we also want to make sure that uh, we see what others have done. We want to learn from their experiences. It's um, We want to manage that knowledge and to capitalize on it. So we have been looking at what other plans have done and we've looked into, is that maybe too ambitious? Uh, is that where we want to be? Do we want to maybe take more of the um, uh, specific, measurable, attainable, um, timely goals or maybe do we really want to, to aim for the stars and do our best, even if we know we might not realistically right now know how we're going to get there. So it's some of the discussions that we're having and we are starting those questions by looking at what others have done. We uh, probably will be engaging uh, a company to help us in the process to run some of the workshops. We will have uh, some work to do with our own internal sustainability committee. Um, they represent our different stakeholders from ancillary services, dining, residents, to facilities management, academia. And that's something that I, I, I think we will continue, that we did before, and I don't expect a change. Brock is very unique in the sense that we don't yet have a sustainability office. Part of that is because we have been so effective in, in advancing uh, the sustainability conversation program without it. Um, but also it's because we do work very closely with faculty. We have a charter agreement that we signed between facilities management and the Environmental Sustainability Research Center. And the, they are doing research, they are doing consulting projects and dissertations. Uh, working with municipalities and many other groups, um, they do research on water and at the same time sometimes they come to facilities management to have initiatives together. So I think that's something that really provides us with an advantage and something I want to carry into the new plan. That synergy and that collaboration um, with faculty, I, I think it's a great opportunity um, that, that we have. 
and that we should really capitalize on. And they were instrumental in developing the first um, sustainability plan. And I want to make sure that they continue being a huge part of that for the new version of the plan. So Mary, like the the this the the faculty that's part of this sort of charter agreement, is it fair to say then that some of the decisions or thoughts or whatever kind of, you know, they go up to the sustainability group and and then from there they go up for final decision making to like a board uh, in terms of figuring out exactly what key, you know, thoughts or ideas should be incorporated into your overall sustainability plan. Mm-hmm. Yes, that's right. We come together with uh, drafts, with recommendations and proposals, and then we do present them to the board. We discuss them and there's a preliminary work. We go back and forth with drafts. We connect with legal. We involve other stakeholders. So it's not always a linear process. There's a lot of back and forth. Um, But yes, we always like to have something that between the, the center and FM that we are comfortable together that we have put up some work already and then we bring it to senior leadership then we also involve other stakeholders legal and we only bring it to the board when it's something that it's board material we don't we know how busy they are how many topics require their attention so we want to be very strategic when presenting those to them we want to make sure that we we have something that they can really make a decision on or provide us very concrete feedback on where we where do we need to go what are we missing what do we need to adjust we find that's uh, most effective for us great and can can you talk to us about some of the kind of projects that you guys are working on or executing today uh, uh, you know in, in that kind of align with your 2018 plan Sure. Uh, We are right now working on an energy dashboard, so we're already starting with the engagement. We secured um, uh, a partnership with Blackstone Energy Services, so they have uh, enabled us to do so much. They have created a dashboard for us. We already have a live one in the lobby of the Ranking Family Pavilion, and it's always showing um, carbon emissions, Uh, They came up with this really cool measure of how many CN towers are we powering at any given time with our cogen plant. Um, We have the buildings and how much energy they're using and we just launched it last month. We are going to also be developing a utilities dashboard, not something that would necessarily be for public consumption, something far more technical that we would certainly be sharing with an engineering group and that we are going to be using in facilities management to identify projects, to track and measure progress, all of those things, even to track our invoices. And the third component of that is that we have now the option of doing challenges. We have done two so far and we are planning on the the third one for for, um, the next few weeks. Uh, The first one was uh, via an app that's uh, Julebog and we enable these competitions. So people can sign in and then they have these measures of sustainability and then if they use uh, a full load of a washer or if they turn the lights on then they record that and they take photos and then they start gaining uh, gaining points so it becomes a competition it can be done either individually or with groups um facilities management was um, 
the subject of the, the test uh, for the, the group one. So we made teams and it was very fun just seeing how much people was now hand washing their dishes and uh, turning lights off and uh, all of that. So it was great and you can see the engagement and we can see how many of those practices now they are mainstream. Now people walk out of their offices turning the lights off even if the competition is off. Um, so it was very fun and we had um, teams names and whatnot and we plan on also whenever we have competitions to be posting those on the dashboard so that people see what's going on and they are also a part of it even if they are not necessarily participating so that's one of our, our biggest initiatives that we have um, right now it's uh, very involved we're, we're learning uh, we're also doing some significant changes to the distribution system of the district energy system. We have a direct injection system. Um, so we had a lot of uh, short cycling. We were not getting the, the heat and the, the cooling where it was needed. At the end of the lines, then the buildings were struggling. People were hot or cold and other buildings were too hot or too cold. So we're making some of those changes, modernizing that, changing valves. And we are also getting rid of um, of older systems that will allow us more control over our, our plant. So it's an ongoing effort and it's um, we have over three kilometers of piping. So it's significant amounts that we, we need to get through. We need to replace uh, some of that piping too because it it dates back from uh, some of it 1964. Oh, wow. So we need wow. to replace that and um, all of that has kept us quite busy. And of course we have the, um, the typical projects. We have our lighting retrofits. We have our BFDs and controls and all of those. Um, we we have enhanced commissioning now for the buildings we are starting to do lead bomb uh, we have submitted um, submitted our application for um, marginai walker our facility downtown in st catherine's and we're just anxiously waiting for the the response from from the reviewers but that's something that um, it's a flagship building and we want to do that more around campus because we see the value on having a lead building, but it's it should not end there. We we should also be pursuing these ratings for the actual operation of the buildings and especially that we have a mixed fleet of buildings. Some of them are old, some of them are new, but they all operate. They all have a performance and that's something we can always work towards improving and having lead EBOM and focusing more on that side, it's something that I, I think will be will be significant for us in, in our progress towards sustainability, carbon and energy. Uh, Mary, since I'm, the host, since I'm the host of the show, I get to ask dumb questions occasionally. You're, you <laughs> used a term there twice that I wasn't familiar with, lead e-bomb or something? I got that wrong. Oh, yes, sorry. <laughs> it's uh, lead existing buildings operation and maintenance. Okay. Okay. So you have lead uh, leadership in energy and environmental design uh, run by the U.S. Green Building Council or Canada Green Building Council here, and um, just like you have that certification uh, for new buildings and new designs, they also have a stream for existing buildings. So they cover the same categories. They cover energy materials, indoor environment quality. It's basically the same categories, but the approach is different. It is performance based. You do have um, a requirement to 
to maintain that certification, to submit, to maintain that performance. So getting the rating is just the very first step. And then you have to maintain that over time. Ah, okay, okay. And that's that's what this lead. Uh, say say it one more time for me. Lead. Lead e bomb. Lead e bomb. Okay, mm -hmm. cool. Uh, that's what that is. It's more of a, a maintenance, an ongoing thing as opposed to a one-time. Okay, cool. Exactly. Awesome. Mary, you mentioned uh, you mentioned earlier this uh, kind of internal competition you guys had with regards to energy efficiency, which I think is just fantastic. It's a it's a way of educating, obviously, all the staff to kind of get on board with this, right, and then carry those practices forward. Switching over to the student side, I was so intrigued by, you know, I think it was a couple of years ago, Matt, you came back from, I think it was the IDA conference, the International District Energy Association, and I remember Matt saying that, you know, there were a significant number of students who were selecting post-secondary education facilities based on what that specific university was doing and what their sustainability objectives are. You know, now we talk about carbon neutral, so a little bit different. But how like how heavily do you think students are weighting universities based on sustainability today? Is this a big component for you guys? Are you hearing a lot of that? Yes, for sure. Uh, in our conversations with uh, the Associate Vice Provost for International Services, talking to faculty, it's very evident that that's something that it's in people's minds. Uh, when students think about sustainability, one of the biggest things that they look into is rankings as well. So they look into the sustainable uh, development uh, guidelines from the UN. Um, they also look into uh, those rankings. So we have started doing more work on those. Since 2020, we we started doing, and um, it's the Association for the Advancement of Sustainability in Higher Education, um, ASHI, and they have a rating system called STARS. And there's also the Times Higher Education ranking. So we have submitted for both, and we should be hearing back on the Times Higher Education in April, and we received a silver rating for STARS. It was a significant effort, but it does provide you with something that now we can tell the students, Brock has a silver rating for STARS. And it's not just us saying we're doing great. Now we have someone to back that up, someone to, uh, to really uh, provide us that assurance that we're on track. And it enables uh, our recruitment uh, people to, to really not only retain um, the, the human capital that we want, but also to, re to retain them. So right. it enables a conversation and it makes it easier for them to, to address this. And it's something that they have brought up to us. We need to do more of these. How can we help? How can we participate? It's certainly for um, in the center of people's minds these days. When students choose where they want to study, it's, it's that. And it's not unlike what we have seen in other sectors. You can see that as consumers, when we choose a brand over another, um, or even when uh, organizations are finding new businesses, it's very different for a corporation to define my business is oil or my business is energy. It's a very different approach. So you start to see that transition, and it was only a matter of time before it became mainstream for higher education as well, especially because there's the societal expectation for universities and colleges to be leading the charge to, to create that knowledge and to use the critical thinking. So it just aligns perfectly with the mission of the institutions. Mm -hmm. 
And out of curiosity, this the silver kind of rating, the silver star rating you have, how does that compare with other universities out there today? Do you know? It's all over the place. Some universities they have just the the the, the ASHI certification, that's it. Uh, other okay. ones, they have done this for longer than us and they have gold. So it's all over the place. One of the, the good things about STARS is that it includes universities from around the world. So oh. we're not only comparing ourselves to Ontario or to Canada, but around the world. So it's one of the most recognized um, rating systems for sustainability. And the same with the Times Higher Education is um, it's going to be very humbling because we know Harvard and Princeton and Cambridge and many of those uh, historic, basically they, they, they are, they, they make part of history. They are part of those and it's very humbling to, to try to put our little mark there and to be measured against them. But it's something that we need to do because if we don't know where we're at, how are we going to measure success? How are we going to find which areas we can do better? And that's what we found with STARS, that we are doing great in some of the areas and we can do better in others. But now we have something that when we submit again for STARS, we can track that progress against itself. We, we have an opportunity now to see where the gap is between, okay, we have been investing a lot of time and resources here. Maybe now we need to allocate those resources there. And that's something that uh, we hadn't had before. And again, it was quite a significant effort, uh, but it's certainly something worthwhile, especially when it comes to students and their interests and advancing sustainability. I think it's almost a requirement now. Yeah, and that engagement piece is so, you know, it's it's great to hear your stories and I hope that, you know, they can spawn some ideas for other folks because it's it's the hard part, right? Like, you know, the the fun and the and the sexy part is to spend you know tens of millions of dollars and do big projects and, and that that needs to happen as well but that won't get us to where we need to be right and and the and the engagement piece is a lot of work for less return but we got to get there right and uh so kudos to you guys for for really for really doing that do you have kind of your next kind of engagement initiative in your mind uh or kind of some crazy ideas that you're thinking about. Can you tease one more idea for our listeners on the sustainability side? Um, in terms of engagement, we are uh, right now putting our effort into the the second version of the dashboard. We want to continue improving on it. We we have received feedback, and we just it was the first time, so we have feedback about maybe we want to make it more straightforward. Maybe we want to make it less colorful or more colorful. So we're we're going to take all that in and then make sure that the dashboard remains relevant and just to release more screens, more information, um, just to keep it relevant. So that's one of the things that we are going to be working on and we want to make it more fun and more engaging every time. Um, the other one, and it's very, very probably unique to universities is when it comes to waste management, we have found that we have people coming from different parts of the world, different municipalities even, they have different guidelines and requirements for what's recyclable, what's not, where, where do you put everything. So that's part of the problem. And it goes down to, to your point about education and engagement. It is an engagement problem. It's not that we don't have the infrastructure. It's not that we don't have the partners to, to divert the, the landfill, um, the waste from the landfill. It's a matter of awareness and engagement. We need to make sure that when people are disposing of the waste, 
they put it in the right stream. And that's completely education. So we're looking at anything from QR codes, better signage, uh, increasing the number of beans, just anything and everything that we can do to make sure that people participate, make it easier for them to, to recognize where do things go. We're finding that when people have to give it some thought, it's, uh, it's overwhelming, even before the pandemic. For people, they have projects and work and friends and their lives are busy so if we can make it simpler for them they will participate more because then they don't have to put any effort into okay i have to read this label and what does it look like if we make it easier on them they will they will for sure do their part yeah. and that's something that may not be as sexy as some of the energy projects uh, but it's something that i think it does make a, a difference something that uh, would go a long way not only in in brock but also in educating people about see how much can be diverted from landfill and that's something that when when they finish their time at brock and they go back to their municipalities or to their countries, they will take that with them. So that's uh, the, 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 the beauty of what we're doing in higher education, that the students take it with them when they're done. So here, here's a crazy idea, um, and this is not a knock on your, your first platform, big, big Ryan Duffy fan, love what they're doing at Blackstone. But maybe in your next iteration, you could figure out how to tie, and, and I say this as a, uh, a homeowner uh, in Thorold, uh, where many of your students live and, and have fun. Um, maybe you could tie organic diversion and the metric on the scoreboard could be pitchers of beer. If there was some correlation that <laughs> I don't think that will be endorsed by the university. <laughs> maybe not. <laughs> no, but, but you're right. Energy is just one of the aspects of sustainability. And the more we can add to the platform and uh, some of the conversations we're having for the next iteration of the dashboard is to include information about our electric vehicle charging stations we now have 23 and we're going to go for 24 um, soon so we also want to display how much they're using maybe how much um, how many kilowatt hours uh, people are using for driving so we're also talking about how can we display some of those things because at the same time we are encouraging people by telling them we have this infrastructure buy an electric vehicle because you can charge it when when you're at Brock and at the same time, um, make make put a number to it's used a lot. And we know because many of the stations are busy all the time, but it would give us something more quantifiable to show people. Yes, they are being used. They are occupied 80 percent of the time. So so it's displaying some of those things that would also help us in many other ways. I want to touch on a word, Mary, that you 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 said earlier, which was overwhelmed and you were, you were referring to it in a different context. but. You know, as it relates to what we refer to as this global energy transition, I think a lot of people are generally speaking, you know, feeling quite overwhelmed. And whether it's, you know, in the mush sector or the industrial sector, I think there's this general feeling where people just don't know where to start. Like there's all of these different technologies out there. And you could be this could have this could apply to the residential sector. This could be, you know, to the industrial sector, the mush sector. I know you have your uh, certified energy management management designation. You're also certified in measurement and verification, or a certified and, and um, measurement and verification professional. Where do you think people should start? Like, does it start at point of use? How does somebody even start to figure out 
how they can become more sustainable and decarbonize? I think there's uh, unfortunately not one answer fits all. I think every organization is different and they need to look into how those technologies are supporting what they do, what their core activities are. So the technologies, for example, if we're talking about, um, uh, I don't know, asphalt or cement manufacturing. So is that technology that you're looking at and that it's it's um, expensive and it creates carbon emissions. Is that technology one of your core technologies, one of the ones that you require to, to do your widgets or to do your day-to-day? -day? Or is it more of a supporting technology? So I think it would have to take every institution that the first step would be to assess their technology mix, to identify what technologies they have and to do proper management, and it's technology management uh, in all truth, monitoring where those technologies are. They have what it's called an S-curve, where you can see if the technology is just starting, if, if it's already mature, right. where, where are they? And it, it's certainly quite an effort, but it's something that is worthwhile doing, and it would really help clarify where to start because you you want to start where you can have the most benefits the higher returns of the, of, the in, of investment where makes the most sense for your organization but you don't know that if you don't even have um, awareness of your own technologies what you have what they are and what you could replace them with so i, I would think that um, mapping that would be the, the very first step for any organization where they go from there and what makes sense for them would be very different. What makes sense for Brock University might not be the same, um, might not make the same sense for Queens and, and uh, likewise with other institutions. So I think it's a unique path that um, everyone has to take. It's, um, but it, it's, it's very, very wide. And it takes some discipline and some systematic approaches to really find a way through. The same with change management, when you're looking at replacing a chiller, when you are looking at a BAS, you also need to be aware of the change. You need to have buy-in, you need to have training for your people. So also sometimes formalizing that change management process, not unlike the technology management process, it also helps to find that um, clarity that many times you're lacking when you are overwhelmed with so many choices. Right. So so to kind of rephrase that a little bit, you mentioned the mapping piece, which I kind of liked. So is it is it's kind of like, you know, looking at what your main users, you know, energy users are, we'll call it maybe from an electricity and a heat perspective, we'll call it thermal perspective understanding where you want to go in terms of your sustainability objectives looking at various technologies that kind of will get you there and then i guess there's a budget piece too right like figuring mm -hmm. out what what those internal paybacks are going to be or what's going to make the most economic sense to kind of get there it's kind of putting that whole map together right yes exactly it's really acquiring perspective giving yourself perspective because you can't make decisions with information you don't have. Right. And a lot of this is not, it's very tacit. So once you, you map it out, you see also where your technologies are at. What, what the technology do? What does, um, 
your ERP does for you? Is it only uh, to accumulate data or, or do you actually do something with it? Just understanding what you have and what you use it for, it will also help you with determining it's worthwhile investing and setting the budget aside for doing something about it. Or maybe, you know what, it's just more of a supporting technology that we don't really doesn't do much for us it doesn't add value for the organization so it's not worthwhile investing half a million in that in at, at this time so it, it does give you that perspective to to really prioritize and give every technology the importance that it has you talked about um a roadmap and technologies i'm i'm curious if you can give us a bit of a a glimpse of of some of the technologies that you know you're you're considering in the future you know we we talk a lot with clients about you know heat pumps and and carbon capture and you know everybody loves to talk about hydrogen a lot of talk less action but it's coming mm-hmm. um, you know and geothermal i mean what are you know if to the extent that you can i mean are, are those some of those things starting to kind of percolate in your next plan and and if so what what are some of the early contenders for what you folks are doing and before you answer that i will you know comment you, you talked lisa about the idea campus energy event and yep I, I was fortunate enough to go recently in boston and we talked earlier mary you said in 92 you went all to to hot water and you know the days of universities burning coal are mostly done. There's some that are still doing it in Virginia, um, but there's, you know, this transition from steam to hot water is still an ongoing. And, and I'm, you know, I'm sure there's many of your peers looking at you saying, "Hey, you got that technology decision right," you know, many years ago. Um, so that's, you know, just wanted to kind of call that out and celebrate that. But what are the next technologies that Brock is is dreaming about or planning about to the extent that you can share, obviously. I think we're not closed to any technology at this point. We want to, we understand that right now there's no, not one single technology that can take the place of uh, of natural gas and fossil fuels. There's just not a single one. If we were all for electrification, there's no way we don't have the capacity or the money as as world, as the country even. To, to really create that infrastructure. It's just not feasible. Uh, and the same with other technologies, we can't only lean on geothermal, but there is a mix and that mix allows us flexibility. So that's the way that we are approaching it. We are not saying no, we, we are all in support for electrification. And that's part of our strategy that we are starting to, to look more and more into. But at the same time, there is also a play, uh, a play and a place for solar thermal and for maybe batteries mm-hmm. and that's going to continue evolving because we don't know what technologies might be available in five years from now so we also want to make sure that we create a, um, a base a foundation that really allows us to incorporate more technologies as they become commercially available that's something that we really want to emphasize that we know that we we don't know what we don't know mm-hmm. so we want to make sure that we do have a platform that allows us enough flexibility to to incorporate new technologies. We know that we want to work towards lowering the temperature of the district energy system and to use uh, instead of medium temperature water, lower temperature, so that when we incorporate heat pumps or geothermal, then they can just tie seamless, uh, seamlessly to it or waste heat recovery. All of those things is something that we don't know exactly what will work where. Mm-hmm. We know we will need a, a portfolio of technologies to replace our natural gas uh, consumption. 
but we know that if we have that solid platform to work with, it will provide us that flexibility to adapt to those changes and to incorporate those technologies. And that's very exciting because it means we don't have to constrain ourselves to a technology or to marry ourselves to one technology and then be stuck with it forever. What if we made the wrong decision? No, we can. It's not mutually exclusive. We can do solar thermal for a pool and we can do uh, solar PV for another building, maybe a residence. It's not mutually exclusive. And having that platform of we, we want anything and everything that we can do to get away from fossil fuels, I think it's very exciting. It, and, uh, it, it, I often use the phrase, sorry, Lisa, I often use the phrase, and, and you know, I never miss an opportunity to drop pop culture into these. Uh, <laughs> I, I often talk about arrows in a quiver, you know, as, as if we were archers. And uh, Lisa knows I'm a, I'm, I'm, I'm a bit of a nerd in some aspects. And one of them, I've, I've now that I have a 10-year-old son, I've, I've fallen in love with Marvel. And uh uh, Marvel had a Hawkeye series uh, in the fall, and I don't know if either of you saw it, but there's this there's a scene in one of them where he builds his quiver of arrows for him and his partner in crime, and and it's all these different types of arrows, and they all have their own way of destroying the enemy, and and uh, if the enemy in this case is carbon, you know, <laughs> Mary Mary is saying she's Hawkeye, and she's <laughs> this quiver of arrows of all different types of technologies because she's going to need them all, so. Um, I love, you know, that, then that's why I asked Mary you to join because I, I love, you know, the approach that you and, and Brock are taking. And I think it's a, it's, it's a, you know, I don't think any approach is necessarily wrong, but I, I really enjoy the approach that you folks are taking. And it's just, it's fun to hang around that. So I appreciate you sharing it. Lisa, you had a, a legitimate uh, contribution. <laughs> no, yeah, that was very legitimate as well, Matt. Um, yeah, Mary, I was going to ask, you know, mainly coming out of selfishness, because I don't know how university projects typically like this are funded. Is it like that? Does the funding for these types of green initiatives or sustainability initiatives come from student tuitions? Do, do you rely on government to kind of get you there? Like, wh where does the money actually come from to implement the projects that you guys decide to to execute? It depends on the project, but there's not one or two sources that we use. We certainly rely on provincial funding, but we also actively participate and submit for grants. That's how we paid for the for most of the, the modernization of the district energy system. That was via a competitive funding that we submitted for federal funding and for provincial funding. Other times it comes from the students tuition, for example, working with the student union, they pay for their projects and they have their own funding structure. Okay. Sometimes uh, we pay for it uh, via consulting. So with the ESRC, we do work for a municipality and then they pay us and that's how we fund, we fund those initiatives. So it's a, a multitude of different avenues. Sometimes it comes from operating budget. So it's not a single approach. Um, I think it's important to recognize that the, the numbers that we are looking at uh, worldwide, not only for Brock, it's quite significant and it's it, it's a big challenge. So we really need to get creative and to find um, the best way to, to move the, the initiatives and the projects forward, regardless of um, maybe it might be more work, maybe it will entail a performance contract, maybe it will be debt. But we just have to really think creatively to make sure that that we can keep things moving forward because the mentality of uh, capital cost only versus the life cycle cost 
it's it's changing. So if we only stay with, oh, we don't have money for that right now, so we'll just take the, the shortcut, it's not going to be the, the most effective in the future. So if we can find ways to supplement what we already have available, then we can do that much more with the limited resources that we have. And that's really the, uh, the approach that we take. You mentioned life cycle. Lisa and I have been across the table uh, from you know, industrial type uh, decision makers. I think you have in a prior life as well, Mary. And and that, you know, that, that time horizon is seems to be getting shorter, unfortunately, in terms of how they make decisions. What's that like for Brock in terms of, you know, you've talked about the history and replacing pipe from the 60s. And how do you, I mean, at some point you do have to draw a line in terms of like what kind of life cycle and time horizon do you use when you evaluate projects? These days we're looking, um, it depends on the project, I will say, in some cases, especially when it comes to lighting or fixtures, we just look, well, we might be renovating these space in 10 years. Well, you know what? It still makes uh, sense to change them because we get our payback and the return on the investment before that, so so be it. Mm. Um, but for others, especially when we're looking at buildings, we do look at, we're keeping those buildings. We don't often uh, demolish buildings. So when we look at them is we're going to be keeping them forever. They're not going to go away. So as difficult as, as it is, we're starting to, to make that part more and more of the conversation. Uh, our, our board is very open to hearing and they, they do ask questions about deferred maintenance and how it helps to have new facilities, but they are also aware of how we have a significant backlog and not only broke all, all the institutions in the province and beyond on deferred maintenance and how those buildings, they, they are an older fleet for the most part. And some of our colleagues, they have even older buildings than us. So when you look at the reality that those buildings are here to stay, it, it's eye-opening and it makes the conversation easier. Awesome. Yeah, that's great. So, Mary, as we kind of wind down the conversation here, um, is there anything else we've, you know, we haven't touched on or haven't done justice to, uh, you know, from your your vantage point and what you're working on, or any kind of closing thoughts that you have for our listeners? Um, I would say the only closing thought uh, that I'd like to leave behind would be, it it doesn't, it can be done by just one party. We need to also find the right partners to do this work, be it consultants, contractors, um, engineers, everyone, because if as owners, for example, we want to design a net zero building, but the, the industry and the consultants we're approaching, maybe it's their first one and they are more reticent to try new technologies. We, we can't do it alone as owners. There's only so much we can do. It's really a combined effort between our own Brock community, consultants, Terms. So I think really it's um, a joint effort that not a single institution or person can do by themselves. So it's something to be be mindful of, just to find the right partners to to align with them, to to realize that you're not alone. There's companies out there that they they already been doing this, they believe in this, and it might not be easy at first, but they are out there. So just just uh, some some thoughts on that. Wow. That is uh, that. That's great, um, and that's you know really the the the, the ethos behind uh, what we're trying to do here with the podcast is is we know that everybody's not alone, and and we want to facilitate conversations so that you know somebody driving in their car right now is listening to you and hearing the idea, and 
um, you know, getting inspired. So, so thank you for that. Um, and on that note, um, if people are listening and saying, hey, you know, there's some good ideas there, what's the best way to connect with you? Is it LinkedIn? Is that the best way to kind of connect with you, Mary, or how best can people reach out to you? Sure, yeah, LinkedIn, it's a, it's a great way to connect with me. And there's always my, my uh, broke email, mquintana at udo, at you. <laughs> sorry, that was my old one, at broke, <laughs> my bad. And um, yeah, my information on the email is uh, posted on Brock's website. So by all means, it's, uh, it's there. And I, I'm happy to, to have conversations with people if there's anything I can do to help them. Awesome. Well, thank you, and and already committing you know an hour out of what I'm sure is a busy day is is very helpful. So Mary, yeah, thank you very much. Thank you very much. It was a real pleasure to have you on the podcast today. No, thank you for thinking of Brock and of myself. And uh, we we are not always great at featuring the the good things that we're doing, and you have provided us a great opportunity to do exactly that. So I really appreciate it. Thank you. Awesome. And my my seven year old daughter is adamant that she will go to Brock one day, and so I'm excited Perfect. that the campus the campus will be uh, will be energy efficient and sustainable when she gets there. So, uh, thank you again to Mary Quintana, the director of asset management and utilities at Brock University. Uh, Lisa, thank you as always. Um, we have a couple more before you go off. Hopefully, uh, we don't I think know. So. Yeah, yeah, we don't know, but we think we can so. plan our we can plan our energy transitions. There are other transitions in life we cannot plan. <laughs> uh, so, uh, thank you to Lisa. Thank you to Mark Charbonneau, who makes us look and sound good. And most importantly, thank you to our listeners. Uh, and until next time, to quote uh, our friend Mary, remember: in this energy transition, you are not alone. Uh, take care.